Good morning. Turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We will continue our three-week series through this letter to a young pastor. Titus chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would illuminate the scriptures for us. Paul tells us that only you know the mind of God, and so we long to hear God speak to us today, and we need you to make clear what is in this text. So prepare our hearts to receive from your word, to hear and listen, and to be changed by your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Hear these lyrics. All our times have come here, but now they're gone. Seasons don't fear the reaper, nor do the wind or the sun or the rain. We can be like they are. Come on, baby. Don't fear the reaper. Valentine is done here, but now they're gone. Romeo and Juliet are together in eternity. Romeo and Juliet. 40,000 men and women every day like Romeo and Juliet. 40,000 men and women every day redefine happiness. Another 40,000 coming every day. We can be like they are. Come on, baby. Don't fear the reaper. Blue Oyster, Blue Oyster Cult's famous and haunting song. Did you catch the message? Author Donald Roser has said he wrote the song to remove the fear of death. He said, love transcends death. Hence the lyrics about Romeo and Juliet. Not a tragedy, but together for eternity and happiness in the embrace of love. The song hit number 12 on the Billboard Hot 100 in late 1976, demonstrating that the song clearly resonated with many people. It was either the message or the prominent use of cowbell. I'll let you be the judge. While the song is a bold anthem for the reality of an afterlife, 
you will listen in vain for an argument for an afterlife. The song assumes there is an afterlife. And the song assumes that the afterlife is a continuation of this present life. That's why he argues for love now so that you can love later in the afterlife. This is the same assumption, by the way, which is so prevalent in the famous saying that any time a celebrity dies in particular is R.I.P., rest in peace. Assuming an afterlife of peace and rest and love. Well, one thing is for certain, which we can all agree with this song, Don't Fear the Reaper, is that what you believe happens after death should, must shape the choices you make here today. See, the the author believed that love in the afterlife should be the thing that drives us to love now, and we can totally agree with that reality. In fact, I'm going to call that living death-shaped lives, and that will be the title of the sermon today. Paul, in chapter 1, last week, he made an argument, and the argument flowed through the chapter, and we sought to unpack that argument, that authority flows downhill, that God gives authority to Paul, who gives authority to Titus, who gives authority to the elders, to be men of character, to live in such a way that the church body willingly follows, and then to teach in such a way that sound doctrine is prevalent. Well, chapter 2 is one single argument, but it all hangs, it all is grounded in verses 11 through 14, as we will see when we get there, that for the grace of God could be translated because You live this way because, and then that goes on to talk about the blessed hope or death, after death, after life. So that's why we're talking about living death-shaped lives today. We will walk through our text with these three points. You are what you believe, gospel-shaped lives, and then when grace appears. So to begin, let's look at our first point. You are what you believe in verses 1 and 15. Verses 1 and 15. Read with me. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Unfortunately, the ESV translates the same Greek word used in in verse 1 and verse 15 a little differently. Uh, Let me kind of do it this way for you. The Greek word is laleo, and it would go like this. But as for you, laleo, teach... Speak, declare the things in accord with sound doctrine. And verse 15 is, laleo, these things. Speak, declare these things. He's demonstrating a bracket. This is one argument. It's one point. Um, So it's unfortunate that the, the translation goes that way and breaks away. But that's what's happening here. The contents of the sound doctrine are being laid out in Titus chapter 2. And he's told to teach these things and to declare these things. And so what's in between is the sound doctrine. But that does raise the question, does it not? What is sound doctrine exactly? I mean, he's going to give us an example of it, but he's also going to have that, it's going to be pretty culturally located with the examples he deals with. So let's think for a moment, what is sound doctrine? Doctrine is teaching. What is sound? Well, the Greek word for that sound there is where we get our word hygienic. Good hygiene. Originally, it meant something along the lines of healthy So uh, Kevin Van Hooser, great theologian, uses a wonderful illustration to bring out what would sound doctrine mean to us today. So he he notes this in his great little book, Hearers and Doers. He says, in February 2017, so almost two and a half years ago, 
YouTube announced that people around the world watch over a billion hours of content every day on YouTube. It's such a thing, the use of apps, that there's an entire new field called captologists seeking to find a way to addict you, to captivate you, to go back to the app, to keep using apps over and over and over again. It's actually, they're seeking to find ways to build compulsiveness into us so we can't ever put down the apps and the videos. So Van Hooser goes on to write this. Watching all this stuff, all these apps, all these things coming at us is consuming the cultural equivalent of junk food, and it is not good for the human spirit. He writes this. Like junk food, apps, games, and videos are pleasant to consume, but also like junk food, they do not nurture the soul. Christians need to understand what modern communication technology and the media culture as a whole is doing to us. Scripture and sound doctrine set the captives free by waking them up to reality, freeing them from the enslavement to cultural fast food. Maybe to summarize it this way, Paul's point would be that sound doctrine is whatever speaks into and against those elements of culture which are captivating us which are enslaving us. It's teaching about God and life in light of God. Van Hooser writes this, a doctrine that is health-giving to the body of Christ is when it exercises a pastoral function of correcting error, of deepening understanding, and of fostering wisdom. And so this is what Titus 2 is going to unfold. You are what you believe. Those two things will always go together. So if you believe you're a sinner saved by the radical grace of God, which has appeared in space-time history through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you will live a certain way. That's what this chapter is arguing. The challenge, though, is this. If you're here today, and maybe you're not a Christian, Titus 2 seems to be the quintessential example of the Christian stereotype that we're just a bunch of moralists. Because there's a lot of do this and don't do that. Live this way. Don't live that way. I mean, it's, it's almost a whole chapter of that. So I have to help to unpack this a little for you. Because every fact only makes sense within a story. And every story, I would argue, only makes sense within a larger worldview. So every worldview has to answer these three questions. You have, first... You have the issue of what are human beings here for? Second, what is wrong with the world? And third, how do we fix it? And so every story then assumes those three things, those answers to those questions. And let me give you an example of how a pure fact has to be said in a story, has to be said in a worldview. So here's what Tim Keller argued for back when he was pastoring in New York City during the 9-11 attacks. He said you could tell the way the different newspapers explained 9-11 the different stories and worldviews that they were using. So first, there was the one narrative that America's sins were finally coming home to it. See the narrative? The narrative is we've been bad, enslaving, horrible people, and that's part of the bigger worldview, and so this was just our just desserts, that we deserve the terrorist attack on our home soil. Then there was a second way that papers in New York framed it, and it was, no, 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 the exact opposite. We're the good people. They're the bad people. And it framed that in a worldview as well. But then there was a third story, the way that they framed 9-11, and it went like this. Through all this death, there can be a rebirth. There can be a resurrection. 
Through all this suffering, we can be a stronger city and a better people. So you see, the fact that terrorists attacked and murdered people could only be made sense of within a story. And there were competing stories and competing worldviews. Why is that important for Titus 2? Because if you grew up thinking that the Bible is primarily a list of do's and don'ts, if the Bible is primarily just a bunch of morals, a code that you live by, then this chapter is going to make no sense to you whatsoever. But if this book is a grand story, a worldview-shaping story, then it is primarily not about us doing certain things and not doing other things, but that that's downstream from the main story, then this chapter takes on a different flavor. The Jesus Storybook Bible, which we have back in the back, and they're free, take one. I, I don't even care if you don't have kids. Read it for yourself. It's so good. But here's what it says, how it describes this bigger story. It says, there are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. And every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is the missing piece of the puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see the beautiful picture. So if that really is the purpose of the Bible, then when we read these commands, we realize that what they are saying is this. People who have been captivated by that story, who have been changed by that story, will want to live this way. That's why there's the list of the commands here. Or we could say it as our second point is titled, this is what it looks like for those who want and long to live gospel-shaped lives. We'll look at verse 2 through 10. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So Paul moves now into this list of commands, which is really just a list of if you have been changed by the gospel, here's the way you will want to live. You will grow in wanting to live this way. And as with the list of elder requirements last week, we don't have time to drill down into all these details. There's some fascinating things, which if you're interested, I can point you to some resources we can talk about. There's this whole cultural thing going on which with what was called the new Roman woman. And that's why he's writing some of these commands. But I want to summarize the big movements that are taking place in this section. And the first one is this. Did you hear the repeated command that is given to basically every group? Self-control. It is given to every group. And the reason that is the case is because, as we saw last week, Paul is writing to those on the island of Crete. And what do we know about the Cretans? That they are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. They have no self-control. 
And so sound doctrine speaks over and against and into that cultural mood. And so he says the dominating thing, the characteristic you might say that summarizes them, is that of self-control. It dominates this whole section. In fact, this same word was used as an elder requirement in chapter 1, that elders are to be examples of this kind of self-control. But it's kind of a weird word. It's not, I mean, there are other words used for self-control. This one can carry the idea of living prudently or modestly. Uh, it, It could refer to avoiding extremes and carefully considering one's actions. But it dominates the whole section. We get first in verse 2, old men, be self-controlled. Then we see how older women are to teach the young women to be self-controlled in verse 5, which assumes that the older women are self-controlled because they're able to teach it to the younger women. Then you get in verse 6, the young men are to be self-controlled. So all four groups. And then again, verse 12, he's going to repeat it one more time, that we are to be self-controlled. And when we consider the billion-plus hours every day spent on YouTube and who knows how much more spent on apps that are designed to waste our time and captivate our attention, I think we can probably say that our culture needs to hear the same warning, that we must be self-controlled, that we need to be those who are prudent, carefully considering our actions. Are our lives defined by living modestly, avoiding extremes, Perhaps to be a bit more blunt. If you're a Christian, then a question you should be asking yourself at the end of every day is this. Jesus died so that I could live today. So did I live today in a way that was worth Jesus dying for? See, friends, there are no do-overs. Every night when you put your head on the pillow, you put a day in the grave. Time is a resource you never get back. There's no rewinds. There's no do-overs. Was it a day we intentionally sought to glorify God? Or was it a day that we were a slave to the captologists? Was it a day that was worthy of Jesus dying for it? That's what Paul would say to us today. That's what he means by be self-controlled. That's what Paul is getting at. But that brings up the second major thing I want you to see in this section. Is that there are three purpose clauses Now, a purpose clause is where Paul uses a particular phrase to tell you this is the reason. I'm I'm, I'm giving you the that, the the reasoning for my language here. And these three purpose clauses show up at different points, but they all three essentially say the same thing from different angles. So look at verse 5. Verse 5, they're to be self-controlled to older women or to teach the younger women to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. That is the purpose clause that the word of God may not be reviled. Paul connects our behavior with whether or not God's word is honored or reviled in this particular culture. Then he does the same thing. Look at verse 8. And sound speech, so now he's speaking to Titus. This is the way you're to teach with sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that for the purpose of an opponent not being able to say anything evil against you. That is what is being said here as well. The same type of idea. Did you catch that though? It actually, what it says in verse 8 is incredible. Having nothing evil to say about us. Did you catch that? So Titus is teaching and his behavior reflects on the rest of the Christians. And that is true for all Christians. That all Christian behavior reflects 
on the rest of the group. Now here, the emphasis is clearly on the teacher, Titus, because he has a larger platform. And that larger platform can do even more damage to God's word, God's name, and to the community of the church. But our lives will either bring him glory or shame. And what he says in this purpose clause is the reason we live self-controlled lives is that our actions as individuals reflect on the body as a whole. Then the third purpose clause, very similar to in verse 10, now talking to bond servants, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that for the purpose of in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God, our savior. See, the same idea is being repeated again. Your actions are, are uh, adorning. They, they are decoring the gospel. Our actions will either show this to be a beautiful community or they'll show it to be a community with many sicknesses and illnesses. A community with many sicknesses and illnesses that seek repentance and seek forgiveness and seek to mend relationships or a community that's proud. So, the first part of living every day in light of eternity, which is his argument, remember he's pushing us towards the blessed hope, is that our lives reflect on the body and our lives reflect on his word and our lives reflect God. What is the reflection? Did you know there's a massive multi-billion dollar wellness industry? It seeks to put off death as long as possible. It seeks to do everything it can there's actually books being written now of ways to avoid dying. I, 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 just, I don't have a category for that, but there are books being written about these types of things. But I would say this. Here's one practical way that we, that we apply this. Christians are to be those who learn to die well. Did you know that the Puritans actually had entire manuals for dying well? It was, it was like an, a genre of literature. It was called the art of dying and they taught people how to die well. See, for a Christian, it's not an option to say, be really afraid of death in the ultimate sense. Because if we believe Paul, we believe that to die is gain. So we need to learn what it is to die well. So friends, when someone in this church gets diagnosed with terminal cancer or terminal illness, when someone in this church, and it will happen, is told you have six months to live. Now, that does not mean that learning to die well means we don't pray for them. No, we obey James 5. You pray and you believe that God is faithful and he will have his will. And if he seeks to heal, then praise God and we pray for that healing. But at the same time, we dare not only obey James 5 and ignore the rest of Scripture. What we cannot do is only pray for healing. We must also pray that our dear brother and sister, who is looking death in the face, that they would be rejoicing in the reality that to die is gain. We need to pray that they would already have one foot in eternity, that they would already be tasting of the heavenly gift, knowing that the one who conquered death is the one who calls them home. We need to pray that they will die well, and in so doing, that they would teach us how to die well. We need to pray that they would, as Lewis put it, be excited to go further in and further up. Gathering church, should the Lord tarry, we will hold the hands of many members as they pass into glory. Let's be a people who know how to die well. Because the most potent testimony that we have as Christians might be this one. 
that when we come to the door of eternity, it's not just a cute song about Romeo and Juliet, but it's a reality that we get to go to be home, that we get to go further in and further up. In other words, all Christians should joyously be able to sing, baby, don't fear the reaper, because he is our savior who is calling us home. So that's what it means to live death-shaped lives in one sense, preparing to die well. But what about how does this apply to us while we're still living and, and not only preparing to die? Well, here's just a couple of practical things which you should take away from these commands of self-control and how to live is this. How do we adorn the gospel in this life? First and foremost, I would say, church, come to see that the members here are your true family. For that member to your right or left or in front of you or behind you, they are the truest family you have. What else could Jesus have meant when he said, here's my mother and my brother and my sister? That the community of God, that he has adopted us into his family, and this is our real family, our truest family. Now, we don't deny our relationships with our biological family. Of course not. But friends, this should shape us so much, this community. Families, married people of the gathering church, you need to be weaving in and incorporating the singles of this church into your family. There shouldn't be singles in one sense. They should all just be a brother or sister who are being woven into your family. Single people, hear this exhortation. Do not only spend time with single people. Invite yourselves over to married people's houses. And married people, accept their invitation. Every time that they invite themselves over, you say, yes and amen. Let's find a day soon, not in months. Or better yet, invite them over first. But here's the thing. I'll just be honest. The beauty of the church is this. It explodes the culture's ideas of community because it's not about our particular affinity group. It's not about our stage or place in life. It's about God is forming a people for his own special possession. So we need to weave these people into our lives. I actually want to really commend some of the young singles in this church. They so faithful, I see, about getting together on Sundays. Families. Married people, you need to learn from these single people because they are really, truly honoring the Lord's day. It's his day. So Sundays really should be a day bent around God's family, God's people. So start taking a playbook from some of the young singles in our church who rarely spend Sundays without each other, and sometimes in smaller groups, sometimes in bigger groups. Make Sundays a day where you weave the church community into your lives, to just be a part of your lives. That is how we start to be a bright light in this world. And we truly come to be those who are adorning the gospel. This new family, this new community then, is made possible because the grace of God has appeared and has radically changed and reoriented our lives. Which brings us to our third point, when grace appears. Look at verses 11 through 14 with me. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I love the ESV's translation here because you notice it's one sentence. 
There's no period. Verses 11 through 14 is one sentence. Excellent job by the ESV. Because it forces you to realize you don't get to take part of the sentence and favor it over the rest of the sentence. The subject of this sentence is the grace of God. And the verb is appeared. The grace of God appeared. And everything else in that sentence connects back and modifies and and flows from that reality. So first, the grace of God has appeared for the purpose of training us to live a certain way. And notice our word again, self-controlled. Second, the grace of God has appeared and it causes us to be those who are waiting for the blessed hope. That is, to live in light of eternity, as we've been saying. And third, it brought all this about because Jesus is the one who gave himself for us for the purpose of redeeming us to purify a people for his own possession. I hope you see how that argument all hangs together really tight. Because here's the thing. Many people and dear, dear friends of mine and many theologians and, and Bible teachers read verse 11 and ask the question, well, what does it mean that the grace of God appeared bringing salvation for all people? What does that mean? And many dear friends that I have would argue that means Jesus died for every single person who has ever lived. It is what is known as universal atonement. That his atonement is for every person who has ever lived throughout time and place. And I want to ask, is that true? They would argue that the face value reading of verse 11 requires this view. I mean, it seems pretty convincing. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's incredibly convincing. But I don't think it's the right reading. Let me give you an example of why. What does the word run mean? Did you know? If you look up in the Oxford English Dictionary, the word run, you will find 396 definitions. Just a couple. Did you know that if you put the word run in a sentence, it sometimes doesn't help you at all explain what the word run means? So for example, the run seemed to stretch on indefinitely. Now do you know what run means? Well, I'm sure you've narrowed it down from 396, but there's still a lot of possibilities. I mean, the run through the woods could stretch on infinitely, but so could the run in her stocking or the candidate's run for office because he never shuts up, or so it could be the run of newspapers. There's still a lot of ways that the run, whatever that run is, could stretch on indefinitely. You see the problem? Words don't work the way that sometimes we think they work. Words are not these like highly technical one-for-one things. Very few words actually work that way. The vast majority of words only work in a sentence, and sometimes in a paragraph, and sometimes in a book. So, the vast majority of words only have their sense in the larger context. So if, unfortunately, some English translations cause you to read verse 11, and it puts a period at the end of verse 11, then many people have read that verse and come to that conclusion. For the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Period. But that's not where the period is. The period is at the end of verse 14, which means we have to let the rest of the context explain it to us. And the rest of the context goes on to say that Jesus died for us. That's a substitutionary category. This for that. And then, even more than that, not only did he die for us, but he died for us to redeem us. A purpose. The purpose of his dying was to redeem. So, 
I do not think that when you consider this verse in its full context that you can actually argue the face value reading is this universal idea of the atonement. On top of that, here's a couple theological things to throw your way, to chew on, if maybe you've grown up with this view. First, Jesus' substitution, if it was for every single person throughout time and space, then you would have to argue that Jesus died for, with the intention of redeeming, the Amalekite high priest in the Old Testament who was facilitating the child's sacrifice, which those people were known for. I just, I don't know how you make that argument. Because universal atonement, you don't get to just, you know, arbitrarily cut it off somewhere. Here's a second one that I think is really important. If Jesus died for everyone, then Jesus actually saved no one. Here's what I mean. It's either or. Either Jesus' death actually saves, and it actually redeems his people, or Jesus' death makes people savable. And somewhere else, down the line, someone has to complete that salvation by certain things that they do. It's one way or the other. So friends, I want to argue that the best meaning of this text would be this. Jesus died in bringing salvation for all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile, which makes perfect sense because chapter one, what did he argue? That there was a bunch of Jews who were stirring up trouble within, within their, that city by teaching things. And so he says, no, 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 don't cast them out. Jesus died for all kinds of people. As he says in Galatians, for male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free. No, friends, I would argue that it is far more beautiful to see that Jesus, his death is always effective. That his redemption is always effective. There's no question mark hanging over Jesus' work When he said it is finished, he meant it is finished. It's done. I have accomplished what I set out to do. So I think that's the best reading of this text. If you have questions or pushback, I'd be happy to talk to you in the back afterwards. But there's a couple other things we need to look at quickly to understand some more little pieces of this chapter. So first, if you're here today and maybe you're not a Christian, I want you to notice something. Paul says that Jesus appeared in space-time history. And he lived. And he died on a Roman cross. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says he also rose in space-time history. And Paul, writing to his first century audience, says, if you want proof, 500 people saw him after he was risen. Most of them are still alive. Go talk to them yourself. Here's why this is so important. Friends, there are many, many reasons that people give for rejecting Christianity. But the historical argument is not one of them. So I would just challenge you today. If you are here and you're not a Christian and you're wrestling with these things or maybe you just don't buy it at all, that do the intellectually honest thing and at least acknowledge that you have to reject history if you want to try and get rid of Jesus. Paul hangs everything on the space-time reality that the grace of God appeared in time in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul goes on to spell out what it is he accomplished, as we've already said, and that he redeemed us. I had to circle back to this because this isn't one of those categories that our generation is particularly familiar with. Maybe, not maybe, some of the older folks in the congregation will definitely understand the language of redeem, to redeem a mortgage. Or uh, let's say you go to a pawn shop and you You get a loan against your watch that your grandpa gave you or what have you, and you redeem it, you pay to get it back. 
That's what redeem was. The price was paid to get it back. And I often think of this idea of redeeming as those like the old mobster movies where you borrowed so much money that basically your life is theirs. They're going to kill you. They're going to end you. And so it's a life for a life or a life for a fortune. But in our case, because we had cursed God, that it cost a life for a life. And so Jesus came to redeem us. He came and paid our debt. He bought us back for the purpose of making us a special people for his own possession. Now that's a weird phrase. You you, you remember from the reading of Exodus 19 earlier, how we heard a, a special people for his own possession. That was the first place this is used. But did you hear the language of that Exodus 19 passage? The warnings, multiple times, the warnings, don't come and touch the mountain. You will fall down dead if you touch the mountain. Well, the reason for that warning is because it's demonstrating the radical holiness of God. You don't even dare touch the mountain at which he's going to come down on the top of it because he is so holy. So when we come to this passage, we say, wait a minute, Jesus redeemed us to purify us, to bring us back into the presence of God. We can go up to Mount Zion, to into his presence, that is what he's saying. And he's saying that everybody who has experienced that reality, that those people joyously come and they're zealous for good works. They're zealous to live the way that verses 2 through 10 lay out because they see the coming of the blessed hope, the return, that the king is coming back. They want to be caught red-handed, as it were, living zealously for good works. And they end with this beautiful, the blessed hope, this this call that, that Jesus is coming back again. You could summarize verse 11 by saying, he came once, guaranteeing he'll come again. But unfortunately, if you've lived in the Western world and America in the last 20 years or 30 years or a little longer, oftentimes the discussion of Jesus's return has been clouded by a lot of weird stuff. Things like the Left Behind series and things like date setting of when Jesus is going to come and all these reasons why he's coming back and every time it fails, people get a little bit more sheepish to talk about the return, to talk about the blessed hope. But friends, we sing about it so often. We sang about it today. The last stanza of so many great hymns were this beautiful note of hope that he's coming back. Here's, we sang one today, but here's a few others. Blessed Assurance. The last verse, perfect submission, all is at rest. I in my Savior am happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness and lost in his love. Or how great there art. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and lead me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. Or it is well. Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. When the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord will descend. Even so, because I know that day is coming, it is well with my soul. We've ruined the joy to the world because we only sing it at Christmas. It's a song about the second coming, the whole song. And the third verse, no more let sin and sorrow grow nor thorns infest the ground Because he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Or maybe one of my favorite hymns of all time. When he shall come 
With trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Friends, faultless because he redeemed. Faultless because he purified. And that is why we can say, on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Friends, this is what it means to have the grace of Christ appear. We wait longingly with no fear of death, anticipating that blessed hope. And hope in the Bible is not a wish upon a star. It is a sure and certain guarantee of what is coming. The blessed hope. And so living death-shaped lives is kind of a double entendre because it means we live life now shaped by his death back then. And we live life now shaped by the afterlife which he is guaranteeing to bring in his second coming. We live now in light of then because he will come and claim his redeemed. And this is why we're eager and we long for the blessed hope, for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that you have a sure hope in his second coming, friends. Would you pray with me?